Well, good morning. Good morning to everybody here. Good morning to those who are watching online. And as we do each week, let's join together in opening up our Bibles. And this morning, we're going to go to Galatians 1. If you're here and want to follow along in a Blue Pew Bible, you can find that on page 972. We are going to finish chapter 1 this morning of this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to various churches in the regions of Galatia. And I find that this morning is an especially interesting passage because we are going to hear Paul, again, who wrote the letter, his, his story of conversion in his own words. So you might know that uh, Luke in the book of Acts tells the story of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, uh, but this passage in Galatians 1 is the uh, most in-depth, um, I guess you'd say autobiographical sketch that Paul gives in any of his letters. He does it here. And the reason why he tells his story now is, I think, just as interesting as the story itself. Uh, We've been now in this uh, letter to the Galatians for the last few weeks, and we know early on that uh, what Paul is addressing, one of the primary, primary reasons why he is writing this, is that there are false teachers distorting the gospel in and amongst the churches in Galatia. And these uh, are the churches that Paul started, uh, that he planted is a word that is often used. He planted these churches, raised up leaders in the region, and then moved on to another city and planted a church and raised up leaders and moved on. And that was throughout his first missionary journey. And now after he has left, in order to effectively distort Paul's gospel, there there are false teachers now questioning Paul's authority. Because if you want to undercut a message, it's most effective if you undercut the messenger. And so with that said, what does Paul do here? I'll tell you what he doesn't do. Uh, He doesn't go into a theological treatise at this point. He doesn't start by going kind of point by point, comparing their gospels to the true gospel. But what does he do first? He shares his story. He shares his personal story of transformation. And I think the reason is because the power of story is more effective than the power of argument. There, there, there is a place for, and Paul will get there in this book, kind of going point by point through uh, kind of the theological aspects of the gospel. But he starts with the power of story. Uh, this, this last Monday night, we started a class uh, on Zoom called Foundations. We have over 30 people at Grace taking that class. And the way um, that I began the class is that when you recognize at the foundation of history, when we talk about the foundation of the foundations, there's not a set of rules to follow. There's not this kind of, here's, the, here's your do's, uh, here's your do-nots, uh, make sure you do the do's and stay away from the do-nots and then you'll prosper. That's not the foundation of history and of the creative order. There's not just instructions how to live. Beneath all of that, there's a story. And the Bible tells a story of an eternal, a loving, holy God who is redeeming and restoring his creation through Jesus Christ. Which, which is why all of us, why humans learn most effectively through the power of story. Uh, so, so I've shared before, you might have heard, I, I love history. I love reading about history. Uh, and I have found over the years that I learn and enjoy history most through the genre of biography. And biography, year in and year out, is the largest category of books that I read because a good biographer doesn't just tell you the story of a person, but it's the person in context of the historical uh, time that they're living in. And and so I find when I read a uh, biography of a cross-cultural missionary, William Carey, that I recently finished, 
I'm sent to England and India in the late 1700s. And then when I read a biography like I did this last year of Jackie Robinson, I'm sent throughout the United States and, and Major League Baseball in the segregated culture of the 1940s and 1950s. When I read a biography of theologian Hermine Bobink, I'm going to the Netherlands in the 1800s. So I get to travel through history in two different places through the context of seeing these people's stories. Maybe, maybe biography is not your uh, kind of uh, cup of tea, but maybe you like novels, or maybe you like watching documentaries that kind of send you to different places that show different stories. As J.K. Rowling says, quote, there's always room for a story that transport people to another place. I agree with that while also admitting I have not read Harry Potter. Sorry, <laughs> J.K. Rowling. Nothing against it, I don't think, but I just haven't read it. I haven't been to that place. But we are formed most effectively and persuasively through story. And I think I'm safe in saying that regardless of what you believe this morning, you seek to locate your story in the story of what you believe about the world. That you can kind of sum up your life that way. Locating my story in the story of what I see and believe about the world. And so for that reason, when the centrality of the gospel is questioned, that the good news of God redeeming and restoring sinners for his glory, with eternity at stake for people's souls, what does Paul do? He shares his story. And for those of us who do profess in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you this morning that your story is your best apologetic. Meaning your story and bearing witness to the work of God in your life, locating your story in his story, is your best case to share the gospel with others and then to show the power of the gospel to others. And so my question as we begin is, how are you doing at leveraging your story? And there are aspects of Paul's story that are unique, as we'll see, uh, including a singularly powerful moment that most conversion stories do not have. But here's what we often tend to do when we think about Paul or somebody with that crazy dramatic story that has all the views on YouTube. That man, Paul has an unbelievable story. That would be so awesome if that was my story. Man, if that was my story, I would be so much more effective at reaching people. But I don't have that story. Again, I hope to encourage us and show us that while Paul's story is his story, the principles of his story are true for all who believe. My hope, my prayer is that you would be walking out this morning praising God for the story he has given you. And to convince you to steward your story for his glory in this world. So that's what we're going to do as we travel through the rest of chapter 1. We're picking up at verse 11 of Galatians 1. We're going to read first to verse 14. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. 
We're going to look at kind of three principles of Paul's story that, again, I think is true for all who believe. And starting with number one, Paul before conversion. Paul before conversion. Or as Paul writes it in verse 13, you have heard of my former life. Meaning his life before encountering the grace of Jesus Christ, before he was spiritually reborn. And the reason why he launches into his story to begin with, again, is the fact that his accusers were saying that he's preaching a man-made gospel for the sake of getting praise from man. So we saw last week uh, in verse 10 where he said, I'm not out for the approval of man. I'm a servant of Christ. For, that's how verse 11 started, for, he's about to tell you why, or because, I would have you know that I received my gospel not from any man, but from Jesus Christ himself. Paul's saying, the gospel I proclaim to you was not one based upon invention, nor tradition, but revelation. And then he shares his story that Paul was on the fast track to success within Judaism. He was a way ahead of track, uh, way ahead of progress compared to all of his peers. Okay, Paul's story is not the case where he was kind of struggling with religion, trying to get noticed, but couldn't really get noticed, and so decided, well, I can't make a name for myself in Judaism. Let's try Christianity. It's not what Paul's situation was. He was on the fast track. He was, in his own words, zealous for the traditions of my fathers, which meant not only to uphold those traditions, but to destroy anything that would threaten those traditions traditions, especially this kind of rapidly growing movement amongst the followers of Jesus. They thought they put that to bed. They crucified him. And now there's this little kind of dust up starting and starting to spread and it's frustrating him. And so he is zealously protecting the traditions of his forefathers. In Acts chapter 9, when Luke tells the story of Paul, Luke writes, he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples. And then Paul, kind of, again, on the fast track, very entrepreneurial, uh, always a kind of a go-getter, he goes to the high priest himself to say, hey, can I go on a mission to round up some of these Christians that started to flee, bring them back to Jerusalem and get them persecuted? I'll do it myself. I'll plan it all. I'll do it all. I'll bring them back. Can you just give me the green light? So to put it plainly, before conversion, Paul's issue was not a lack of passion, his issue was not a lack of purpose and searching. He was not searching. He was only searching for Christians. His problem was that he was blind to grace. Which is why he's so passionate about grace in this letter, because he was blind to it in his former life. He was kept from seeing the light of Christ. The Christian gospel, it was foolishness to him. And its followers were fools. Not just fools that you kind of dismiss, but the kind of fools who were threatening his power. And whenever somebody is in power, sees that power threatened, they tend to try to find a way to root it out. It needs to be dealt with. Now, again, if you're a believer this morning, and I don't assume that everybody is, and we're glad you're here wherever you kind of are on that journey. But if you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you reflect upon your former life, meaning your life 
when you were blinded to grace. I doubt it contained some of the same details as Paul's, but do not let that cloud the fact that you had a former life. And the primary problem in the story of the world, in Paul's heart and our hearts, and of every individual in the world, is that we are in need of grace. But because of sin, and being what the Bible calls spiritually dead in sin, we refuse and are unable to see the very thing we're in need of. The problem before conversion is not that we need to be made nice, but we need to be made new. I think and I lament that many people treat God like a chiropractor, not a heart surgeon. But we don't need a tweak to be adjusted. We need a transplant to be saved. You know, uh, Rochelle, I got nothing against chiropractors, right? That wasn't a knock against anybody. Um, Rochelle loves going to the chiropractor. She loves getting adjusted. It's been actually a really positive experience for her, seeing the benefits for her and our kids in a variety of ways ever since Caden was little. And again, I had nothing against them in principle at all. But she's always trying to convince me to go, and I refuse. Do you know why? I don't like being touched at all. <laughs> I, I'd like to think I'm, uh, I'm affectionate with her and with our children, but when it comes to like chiropractor, massage, anything like that, I'm out. Right? Way too ticklish. Right? Like, I'm, I'm serious. I have a hard time trying not to laugh when the doctor is checking my lungs with the stethoscope. Like, from when I was little, I still have to try to not giggle. I'm a grown man. It's like sitting on the bench just trying, like, don't laugh. This is too embarrassing. So I'm out. That's where I'm at in life. But many people, they treat God like a chiropractor. They just think they just need to be tweaked a little bit. Go to church a little more often. Stop drinking as much. Be a little bit more generous. Get some positive vibes. Little tweaks, little adjustments. Add Jesus to the list. Curse less. Try and serve people more. And those are good things to pursue. But it won't bring you salvation. That's not the good news of the gospel. That's the bad news of self-help with a religious makeover. We need heart surgery. And yet we have a better chance of giving ourselves a literal heart transplant than we have of saving ourselves without the grace of God. That's what Paul means when he says, this is not man's gospel. Because if it was up to man to think of this, if it was up to our natural desires, it would make no sense. Nobody thinks of this. Grace goes against everything we want to naturally believe about ourselves and about the world. We operate under a works-based righteousness that you get what you deserve. You take out what you put in. You earn what you work for. And with hard work and determination and the right support, man, you can do anything. And that's the secular creed. And that sounds like a motivational talk. But when it comes to salvation, that is the talk of pride. And pride is always the enemy of grace. Uh, C.S. Lewis calls pride the spiritual cancer. 
pride is the spiritual cancer of the world because it is the root of every sin and it has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family ever since the world began. So in this state, in a state of pre-conversion, grace, not just an option I can take or leave, grace is offensive. We're threatened by it. Especially for those like Paul who experienced success and affluence in the world. This is the state of pre-conversion. Paul's former life, he was genuine. His issue was not not being genuine. He was genuine about practicing Judaism and destroying Christians. So the problem was not that he wasn't sincere. The problem was that he was sincerely wrong. As were each of us before grace. Paul's story before conversion is your story. All right, let's keep going in the text. We're going to pick it up at verse 15 to read 15 and the first half of 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Can I read that again? Verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Number two, Paul's story, Paul during conversion. Verse 15 starts with a small word, but the most important word in the whole passage, and the word is, but... Throughout Paul's letters, you could very well say that the summary of the gospel, as he writes to churches, can be found in the phrase, but God. You see, the word but is a word of reversal. But says the initial word is not the final word. And we use it all the time. Uh, think about how uh, you might use this. Perhaps you'll find yourself watching an NFL playoff game this afternoon. And you'll hear the announcer say, Tom Brady throws for a 50-yard touchdown pass. But there is a flag on the play, and it's coming back. That's what I'm going to be rooting for. Think about hearing from your doctor. Your test came back, and you have cancer. But we caught it early, and it's fully treatable. Think about at the airport, maybe you want to get away from this crazy cold weather, find yourself going down south, and you get to the airport, and all the hassle, and you hear at the gate, I'm sorry, your flight is canceled. But we can get you on another one, taking off 30 minutes later, and you're in first class. But says, the initial word, it's not the final word. And when it comes to the story of believers, but is a glorious word of reversal. It is the moment of God's grace overcoming man's sin. And then notice the change from verses 13 and 14 to then 15 and 16. In Paul's former life, he said, I a lot. I persecuted the church. 
I was advancing in rank. I was zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And then after the word of reversal, it changes to he, meaning God. He set me apart before I was born. He called me by his grace. He revealed his son to me. The story of salvation is when we move from me to he by his grace. And I want to ensure that we see uh, three things in this conversion uh, that Paul talks about that, again, is true for all believers. Number one, that God set him apart. Conversion in God's plan for Paul was set in motion far long before Paul had his moment on the Damascus Road and Christ revealed himself to him and blinded him and called him to himself. That was the kind of watershed moment. That's the, that's the moment it became visible, but that plan was set in motion far before that moment. For Paul says, he set me apart before I was born. There's a lot you can draw from here. And encourage us that no one is too far gone. No one has done, messed up their life beyond repair. Have you heard that? Maybe you've said that. I messed my life up. I messed up. And the, the message behind that is like, it's done. But this tells us that no matter how prideful Paul was, no matter how blinded and hardened to grace he was, God's plan for his life would not be derailed. It could not be de derailed. This is the providential grace of God. No amount of sin can cancel out God's grace, for it is God's grace that cancels out man's sin. Not me, he. It's also one of the many reasons our church is passionate about advocating for the lives of the unborn. Because in the sovereign mind of God, personhood begins at conception, not birth. And every miscarriage and every abortion is a tragic loss of those made in his image because God sets people apart before they are born. And surely for those who sit under maybe the weight or the or lament of miscarriage or abortion in our past, grace abounds because we go back to point number one, no plan against God's grace can overcome God's grace overcoming your sin. There's hope here. God set him apart. Number two, during his conversion, God called him by grace. This is what theologians call the effectual or the effective call of grace. Effective meaning God's not asking when he calls someone. He's not hoping. God's not influencing but when God calls, people change. When God speaks, things happen. This is the effectual call of grace. His call is not like our call. When we call out to someone or we try to make things happen, man, we are limited in that ability. When I call my kids to do anything, I'm at a 0 to 50% success rate. All right, I, I've not gotten above 50% yet. We don't change people. God changes people. And that change is applied when he calls by his grace. And he does that through people. He uses people as a means of grace to reach others. But that's his call. His effectual call of grace. 
Think about your story. I think it's very important for believers to remember their conversion. Do you remember when God called? Perhaps it happened at a young age. Perhaps you actually don't even remember the exact moment. That's similar to my story. And and that's not the kind of moment you remember most in your mind. But perhaps it's a moment that happened down the road when you drifted and he called you to reawaken you to that grace. That's my story, my junior year of college. That's when I remember the call, the reawakening by his spirit. I didn't look for that. God in his kindness called. Why is Paul a Christian? Why is Paul a Christian writing this letter? You got to start with grace. Brothers and sisters, why are you a Christian? The answer to that starts with I. I just encourage you to reevaluate. It's all grace. He called. You responded. Not me, but he. And the third principle of Paul's conversion, God revealed his son in verse 16. Notice Paul is not saying this is the first time he's heard about Jesus, so he knew all about Jesus. To the point where he was convinced he had to shut down all of the followers of Jesus. So when Paul is saying that he revealed his son to me, he's not saying I knew about him for the first time. He's not talking about knowing about Jesus. We talk about this a lot at Grace. There's a big difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. My heart for you is that you would know him and not settle to know about him. That when God reveals Jesus to the eyes of our hearts, when he's revealed as the Son of God who shines light into the darkness, he who was revealed is the one who brings life and life to the full. It's not in the screen, but I want to read quickly 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 and 6. Paul writing in another letter to the church in Corinth. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, you see that, not me, he, we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Look, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's story is your story. And the details may be different, but your salvation is every much a gift of God's grace to heal the wounds that have been ruptured by the fall. Maybe you have what you consider a boring testimony. Have you ever said that? Kind of a boring testimony. You kind of maybe came to faith early in age and kind of went through life and surely had difficult moments and ups and downs, but God has just kind of sustained you through and you don't have this kind of watershed moment in your adult life to say, man, like I could use that story so effectively if I had that, but I have a boring testimony. And they, maybe you struggle with that. Maybe you have struggled with that of, um, was I just doing that for the approval of my parents? I was five. What five-year-old doesn't want to respond to their parents in that way? Did God really save me there? Or like, who was I doing that for? I didn't understand the reality of justification and sanctification. Like, how do I deal with my story when I claimed to believe when I was a kid, but I'm kind of wondering, was that true? Especially if you can't remember the moment. Let me encourage you. 
Number one, that God is big enough to save young children. Amen? That God is big enough to save young children. And there is no such thing as a boring testimony. Because when you talk about the reality of salvation, every single story is a miraculous work of eternal death to life and revival by God's grace. And so if you today trust in Jesus as your Savior, no matter how God arranged your life to draw you near to himself, you are a walking miracle. I forget who it was that said that when you were asked, are you living right now, you don't go searching your safe for your birth certificate to prove that you're living. You check your pulse. And if you love Jesus and you're trusting him and following him as your Lord and Savior, you are a working miracle, walking miracle, regardless of when you know that's, if that story started. This past November, there's a former football player, Ryan Shazier, came out with a book telling his story of how in December 2017, during a Monday night football game, he attempted a tackle. And in a split second it takes to see, make a tackle, take it to the end, he was paralyzed from the waist down. Doctors told him soon after to prepare for a life where he would, in all likelihood, never walk again. Family trying to care for him, support him, but also prepare him that this is your new reality. And while he would never play in the NFL again, one year after his injury, he walked out on stage of the 2018 NFL draft. He just came out with a book. You know what it's called? Walking Miracle. Your story of salvation is nothing short of an eternally walking miracle because of grace And the reason why it is so vital that you see that and understand that, because it it will shape how God can use you in living that story out. Which leads to the rest of the passage. We're going to pick it up at 16, where we left it off halfway through, and take it to the end of chapter 1. Let me read 16 again. He was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cecilia, and I went still unknown in person to the, regions, to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Third point, Paul after conversion. Paul, now after conversion. That's a pretty wordy paragraph that Paul is kind of retracing his steps. He's almost creating an alibi. And it's all flowing from the main point that was spoken in the uh, back half of verse 16. That upon his conversion, he did not immediately consult with any of the apostles from Jerusalem. So that's the accusation. That he had a man-made gospel. That he was kind of swayed by them. And then began to preach their gospel. So he is hammering home this point with evidence 
that he was called by the risen Christ himself to believe in God's gospel, and then he was commissioned to proclaim this gospel. And again here, Paul was uniquely called in the sense that he was given the status of an apostle, even though he did not follow Jesus during his earthly ministry, like the other apostles did. But all the same, God in his infinite wisdom raised up Paul to preach among the Gentiles, meaning the non-Jews. And so he kind of, again, proves this point by point by, by providing the timeline of his calling to show that he did not get swayed by the apostles in Jerusalem. He's very much united with them in the same gospel, but it's not because he was sent by them, nor was he discipled by them, but he was sent by God himself. So he gives us a little bit, even in these verses, a window into what a life after conversion looks like for believers, what it ought to look like, what it can look like empowered by the Holy Spirit. First, that he was called to make the name of Christ known. Paul writes, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that, here's the reason why, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. When we receive a new heart, we receive a new purpose with that new heart. And that purpose for all of us is to glorify his name by making his name known, by making disciples. And the way that shared purpose plays out amongst us is different based upon our giftings, based upon our callings, based upon our context where God places us. Not everyone's going to be called to preach, but everyone will be called to make his name known. And I think there are believers who will be more effective and have more of an opportunity to make his name known than even preachers can because you're going to go places I can't go. You're in spaces that I don't inhabit. And when we gather together to be filled up, then we scatter to make his name known. And wherever God has placed you, And so my question, and I know it's not like an uncommon question, but what is your mission in life? What is the most important thing for you to do between today and the day the Lord calls you home? That's a question you might not think about a lot, but whether you can articulate it, it affects everything you do or don't do every single day. Your mission is your most shaping force in your life. And again, I hope this is more of an encouragement and not uh, something that kind of makes us nervous. But when you get to the end of this life, I can guarantee you you're not going to be thinking about how high you got up at your job. You're just not going to be thinking first about your career. You're not going to first be thinking about how many followers you had on social media, how many people watched your last TikTok video. You're not even going to be thinking about your family tree in the sense of where you came from or maybe what's coming after you. And those can be good things in the right place to think about. But at the end of our lives, we will be thinking about how we used all those good things to serve our ultimate purpose to make the name of Jesus known. And so what I'm saying is that if that's what we're going to be thinking about then, it's worth our time to think about it now. Perhaps your struggle is not the drama of your conversion story and whether you remember it, but perhaps your biggest struggle right now is your current state of faith. That the frustrations of this world easily overshadow the joy of your conversion. 
Or if you're honest, you say, yeah, God saved me, but my family situation's in shambles. My financial situation is a, not great. My mental or my physical health is plaguing me, and I'm just tired. To you, I'd say more now than ever, it is essential that you remain close to Jesus. That you remain near to him. Because not only will he sustain you, but he will use your struggle to make his name known for your joy and his glory. Pastor David Platt, this quote will be on the screen, says this. Hit me between the eyes. Paul's life was not easy, but it was purposeful. And I would rather have a difficult life with purpose than an easy life that is meaningless. So first, he went to make known the name of Christ. Second, he went into the desert for three years after being commissioned by God. Do you notice that little detail? It's in Acts 2. Acts tells us he went into Arabia for three years. Big conversion story. Dramatic. Gets this commissioning and this calling to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But first, you're going to go in the desert for three years, Paul. It's the mystery of Paul's timeline. We're not explicitly told anywhere in Scripture where exactly he went, who was there, or why he went. But we know that he was there. And we know that is the, a continuation of a theme that is all throughout Scripture of God calling people powerfully, commissioning them, and then having them go through a time of waiting or isolation in preparation for their ministry after that call. It happened to Abraham. It happened to Moses. It happened to David. And most notably, to Jesus himself. So Paul, you're set apart to preach to the Gentiles, but head to the desert first. Waiting time is not wasted time. And God often strengthens us in the waiting so our hearts are made alive in him and him alone. So when he does say, go, we're ready to go. God does not call you to be productive above all else. We're a very productive society. But God calls you to be faithful and near to him. Waiting time is not wasted time. And then third and finally, Paul displays a transformed life before others. After conversion, Paul displays a transformed life before others. The leaders of the church in Jerusalem were initially wary of Paul, wouldn't you be? They knew all about Paul and his former life, and so even three years later, after they heard of this conversion, they still were a little wary when they heard he's coming to Jerusalem. His reputation preceded him. And yet Paul says that he was hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified Paul? No. They glorified God because of Paul. Paul's story gave God the glory. And the daily living out of a transformed life is the best testimonial to the grace of God you can give this world. Your own holiness and pursuit of God is the best case for Christ you can show this world. 
And a transformed life is not just letting your good, impressive work show. I think a transformed life is also being honest about your struggles. Being transparent where you feel weak, where this is an uphill battle, where this is hard for me. Because the gospel frees you to be honest. And we miss that a lot. We want the good works, show the good works, hide the bad stuff. The world will not like it. They see the bad stuff. But if we're honest in our weaknesses and we can say, I can be transparent about this. This is hard for me. This has been a struggle. It's been years. I'm trusting the Lord with it. That that many times, again, what I was saying earlier, God will often make his name known through your struggle far more than your giftings. And when Paul was accused of preaching a false gospel, it's a big accusation. As we close, what did he do? He shared a story. The story of God's grace. He said, here it is. Here I am. You decide. And church, your story of God's grace in your life is your best witness. It's the only story you got. And it's the only story you need to make a difference to glorify his name. And when we join in a church, Joe prayed about this earlier, I don't know if you picked up on it, that when you join with people who have different stories that lead to the same Christ, collectively people will look at Grace Church and see it's not me, it's he. Let's pray. Father, we are both humbled and made confident by your grace. Lord, we are reminded of our former lives. We are reminded of how bankrupt we are without grace. And yet, Lord, I pray that we would use our story to make much of your name. That you set us apart that you called us by that grace and you revealed your son to us, Lord. I pray, number one, that that would never seem normal to us, that we would never cast that aside, that we would always see that as the central moment and the most important thing about us is that which can never be taken from us. And I pray, Lord, that you would arrange our lives where the world will see us, both in our giftings and in our struggles, and would be drawn near, not to make much of us, but to glorify your name. Let it be true, Lord. Let it be true. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.